Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Hello, everyone. It seems that uh, the sermon on Sunday, um, something strange happened and the first 30 seconds uh, didn't make it onto the recording. So I'm just here uh, by myself recording uh, the first part of my story and then it will kick in here for you uh, to the the stream from Sunday. So um, this week we're talking about Romans uh, 9 to 11. And yeah, I started off with a, a bit of a personal story. So uh, when I was a young girl, I had this t-shirt that said, bow now or bow later, don't be left behind. Uh, I was probably 13 years old and I was intense. <clears throat> and I really wanted people to know that I was a Christian and that one day uh, they would all know that I was right and that if, you know, they should have also become a Christian. Uh, and looking back at my story and looking back at that young girl, um, a bit of context that's kind of helped me kind of hold her with love uh, is that my home life was uh, pretty difficult, pretty up and down all over the place when I was a kid. I went to uh, public school for kindergarten and then I homeschooled grade one and two, uh, which meant kind of like going on the road with my dad a lot while he installed windshields. And then I went to Catholic school for grade three, and then I homeschooled grade four, and I went to homeschool for grade five and six and seven, and then I did the world's first year of online homeschool in grade eight. And then I spent all of grade nine in the hospital with mental health problems. And then I went to a new school for grade 10, and then my parents' marriage blew up, and I moved to a new city for grade 11, and then life blew up again, and I moved to Calgary for grade 12. So I didn't have a lot of sense of belonging and stability, and I think it made me kind of a bit awkward and weird because I just knew already that I wouldn't fit and I wouldn't belong, and uh, like I was a bit intense. So I really liked being Christian. Jesus was my best friend. Jesus was the one thing that wasn't going to change, and no matter where my life took me, uh, I knew Jesus would be there. And so I really clung to this identity and the sense that I was right, and I was Christian, and I had Jesus and nothing, and no one could ever take that from me. Um, the youth leaders at my church were very kind to me. And um, within the context of my kind of Christian tribe, I had the sense that I was a part of a special club, that I had the special knowledge, that I knew something that no one else out there knew. It was us versus them. And I knew and I held on with hope to this idea that everyone that made me feel invisible and insignificant would one day know that I was right that I mattered, that I was good. Like, oh, she's still in there. Hello. (laughs) Uh, that, That I mattered, that I was good, and that anyone that refused to love me and accept me and agree with me would go to hell. And they'd feel nothing but eternal regret for not listening to me and knowing me. When I was 16, actually probably 18 years old, My best friend in the whole world, um, she was not Christian, did not grow up in the church, and you can imagine that that was a huge problem for me, a huge problem, a huge burden. And I'll never forget, for the rest of my life, um, parked at Glenmore Reservoir, not far from here. Um, My grandparents live in Lakeview, and so I spent a lot of years of my teen years um, there. 
Um, she, she asked if we could hang out. I know she was going through a hard time. I was going through a hard time. Um, and whenever she reached out to me in a hard time, I just saw it as an opportunity to share the gospel. And she took me uh, for a drive. It was late at night, and we parked overlooking the reservoir. And she shared with me with tears in her eyes that she was going through a time of, like, crippling depression. And that she was having some suicidal uh, thoughts. And she would park here at night and sometimes just stare out at the river and imagine a way out of all the pain she was in. And my response, I looked her dead in the eye and I said, I cannot convince you not to take your own life, but I could help you accept Jesus into your heart right now as Lord and Savior so that when you do it, you won't suffer eternal hellfire. She didn't speak to me for two years after that. My mother, uh, love her very much, uh, had an affair that kind of blew my family up when I was 16. And instead of hold the pain tenderly that my little, you know, 16-year-old girl's body was trying to hold and face the big scary sense of being abandoned and afraid and all that, I went to my mom's new apartment a few months probably after the beginning of the divorce, and I opened my big Bible it had a jean cover with a zipper. It's how you know you're evangelical, if your Bible had a handle. And I walked her through all the biblical evidence that she was going to hell, where she'd pay eternally for her actions. That was 19 years ago, and I haven't spent much time with her since then. I was losing everyone, but at least I had Jesus and the assurance that one day, Everyone would know that I was right, and if they wouldn't bow now, they would bow later, when it would be too late. And that was the faith I was shaped in. Instead of, you know, have the love that I need or the community that I need, I had a sense of being right. And that sense of being right and that hope I had that everyone who had hurt me would suffer uh, gave me a sense of security. And now, 20 years later, I wish I could go back. This was the part, I was like, I'm gonna try and read this and not tear up, but the evidence suggests that I will not be successful. <laughs> 20 years later, I wish I could go back to that little girl with the t-shirt that said bow now or bow later. Pick her up in my arms, take her for ice cream, and tell her how sorry I am for how messy her life was. I'd tell her I could see how afraid she is afraid that she'd be alone forever, afraid that she'd never find her place in the community of creation. And I would tell her that hell isn't a place made by God for certain people to go after they die. I'd tell her that it's a place ba made by humans and it's here on this green earth and that she was in it. And I'd hope like hell, can I use that expression? That my eyes of love and my attention to the pain beneath the t-shirt, the anger, the ego, and that sweet gift of ice cream would be for her a life raft in the storm, a cooling balm in the heat. The longing to go back and save her is what drove me to become a youth pastor because I knew that that 13-year-old girl that was me 25 years ago, um, she's everywhere out there. She's looking for hope right now, walking around the streets of Bowness, looking for friendship, looking for love in the wrong places, looking for someone to say, I see you. And uh, I'm not a pastor now because of my concerns about life after death. 
I'm a pastor now because of my convictions about the hope we have before death. You see, nowhere in the Bible does it say God created hell. That story's not in there. It's just not there. There's no story of it. Nowhere in the Bible, in fact, this will blow your mind, are heaven and hell listed together side by side. It's not there. They're never framed as opposites. In fact, heaven and earth, heaven and earth are side by side all over the place. Heaven and hell aren't together side by side, but heaven and earth are. The reconciliations of all things is there. The victory of Christ over the powers of sin and death and suffering are there. The promise that one day all things would be made new is there. The promise that tears will be wiped away from every face is there. That all weapons in the world will one day be melted into gardening tools is there. The promise that all who mourn will be comforted is there. The promise that the land would one day belong to the meek is there, that the hungry will be filled with good things, that the whole earth is filled with God's glory, and that one day everyone would be given a heart of soft flesh where a heart of stone used to be, is there. And that's the message that 13-year-old Nikayla probably needed uh, that I didn't get, I didn't know. And I, I, I'm reading Romans um, these last couple weeks, couple months even, in anticipating this series, and I see Paul's heart for this community, this broken, fractured community in Rome. Uh, it's divided. There's Jews and Gentiles, and, and there's so much conflict about who's right and who's wrong, who's in, who's out. And, and if you're in, how did you get in? Did you believe the right things? Did you say the right prayers? Are you moral in the right ways? And there's this conflict in the debate who's right, who's wrong. And so I want to show you, I'm just, like, normally I'd, like, show you a text, show you, like, some cool Greek word or how it connects to some Old Testament thing, but I'm going to try something different. I'm kind of just going to read, I'm not going to read three chapters of Romans, don't worry. You could, I encourage you after this, literally, to read Romans 9 to 11. I'd love to sit down before Advent and just read all of Romans in one sitting with, with you all. Um, but I want to show you a few verses, and Romans is complex, and so sometimes there's these little nuggets of gold. It's like, whoa, that's crazy but it kind of gets buried in some complicated things about like Abraham and you know stuff that is theologically technical and you feel like you need a theology degree to understand. So I just want to slowly show you um, a few chunks of text from Romans 9 to 11 and, and see if, if you're picking up what I'm putting down. Um, hopefully you can see that. <clears throat> Romans 9, 1 to 3 says, this is Paul, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. As my conscience assures me with the Holy Spirit, I have great sadness and constant pain in my heart. I wish I could be cursed, cut off from Christ, if it helped my brothers and sisters who are my flesh and blood relatives. In verse 14 to 16, he says, so what are we going to say? Isn't this unfair on God's part? Absolutely not. He says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whomever I choose to have mercy, and I'll show compassion to whomever I choose to show compassion. So then it doesn't depend on a person's desire or effort. It depends entirely on God who shows mercy. 
Later in Romans 9, he says, so you are going to say to me, then why does he still blame people? Like, why is God mad at us if it all just depends on his mercy and not our initiative? Why does he still blame people? Who has ever resisted his will? You are only a human being. Who do you think you are to talk back to God? Does the clay say to the potter? Okay, jars of clay was my jam in high school. <laughs> and jars of clay, that Christian band, this is their text, all right? He says, doesn't the potter have the power over the clay to make one pot for special purposes and another for garbage from the same lump of clay? What if God very patiently puts up with pots made for wrath that were designed for destruction because he wanted to show his wrath and make his power known? What if he did this to make the wealth of his glory known toward pots made for mercy, which he prepared in advance for glory? We are the ones God has called. We don't come only from the Jews, but we come also from the Gentiles, as it says in Hosea. I will call my people those who aren't my people. And the one who isn't well-loved, I will call loved one. And in the place where it was said to them, you aren't my people, there they will be called the living God's children. In the next chapter, Romans 10, um, I only have two more slides, don't worry. This was my, my plan. So I'm just going to show you some text and let it do its work. Romans 10, he says, Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and in your heart you have faith that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Trusting with the heart leads to righteousness, and confessing with the mouth leads to salvation. The scriptures say all who have faith in him won't be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord is Lord of all who gives richly to all who call on him. All who call on the Lord's name will be saved. So how can they call on someone they don't have faith in? How can they have faith in someone they haven't heard of? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who announce the good news. But everyone hasn't obeyed the good news. As Isaiah says, Lord, who has had faith in our message? So faith comes from listening, but it's listening by means of Christ's message. But I ask you, didn't they hear it? Definitely. Their voice has gone into the entire earth and their message has gone out to the corners of the inhabited world. But I ask you again, didn't Israel understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who aren't a people, of a people without understanding. And Isaiah even dares to say, I was found by those who didn't look for me. I revealed myself to those who didn't ask for me. And lastly, in Romans 11, he says, I don't want you to become unaware of this secret, brothers and sisters and siblings. That way you won't think too highly of yourselves. A part of Israel has become resistant until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. In this way, all of Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodly behavior from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. According to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But according to God's choice, they are loved for the sake of their ancestors. God's gifts are calling, sorry, God's gifts and calling cannot be taken back. Once you were disobedient to God, but now you have mercy because they were disobedient. In the same way, 
They also have been disobedient because of the mercy that you received, so now they can receive mercy too. God has locked up all people in disobedience in order to have mercy on all of them. It's like, Paul's like, it's none of your business who's in and who's out and how they got in and how they got out and, and, and like, well, I'm a jar of clay used for good and you're a jar of clay used for bad and this kind of like anxious uh, bow now or bow later, I'm right, you're wrong, I have the secret knowledge and if you don't listen to it and receive it, then you're going to suffer. Like Paul's seeing this anxiety in the community and he says, God's plan is to save all of us because that's who God is. God didn't save you because you did a good thing and you made a right choice. God didn't save you because of your initiative. God saved you because of God's initiative. And somehow in the working of all this plan, God's initiative is all things being made new. I always thought when I was younger, like I grew up with Calvinism, which is that kind of like, I don't know if any of you went to Bible college and you like got caught up in that debate of like predetermination versus free will. Like God just chose certain people to go to hell and nothing they do can change that. And God just chose some people to go to heaven, and I'm one of those people, so I don't need to feel like as you were. <laughs> and it was really terrifying to kind of hold that belief that I was one of the pieces of pottery. My grandmothers are potter, and so I've watched lots of pottery be made in my life, and it's like sometimes the piece just breaks, and she throws it out and has to make a new one. Um, and I, I kind of grew up be believing that I was one of the jars of clay that would be used for like an honorable purpose, i.e. heaven and like eternal paradise. But then... As I got older and my life got kind of painful, I don't know if you noticed in the beginning there, there were some hard, some hard uh, bumps in the road of my life. It kind of started to feel like maybe I was one of the pots made for just like using as a toilet. Like in the ancient world, it's like a jar of clay could have holy water that or we're going to use for like purification or the jar of clay is the one that you just like piss in. And I thought that I believe I'm the one used for holy water, but I feel like I'm the one being dumped in. And um, I, 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 I had a hard time. I remember growing up and always trying to argue my friends into the faith. Apologetics was my jam. I could argue in my mind anyone. I had all these cool arguments about how the, like, I could argue that the earth was only 6,000 years old. I could argue without a shadow of a doubt that the resurrection absolutely happened. I could do it all. And then, and then it, what would bother me was the question of, of, of heaven and hell. Because I'm like, man, you're telling me that Jewish people who died in the Holocaust are suffering eternal conscious torment right now? That's a hard pill to swallow. You're telling me those kids whose bodies are being recovered from residential schools that their souls are suffering eternal conscious torment right now? And that God just made them for wrath and that's God's business, not mine? Man, that's, that's going to mess with your head. It would be hard to enjoy God's party in the sky if I knew that God had a torture chamber in the basement. It's hard to see Jesus as the king of all creation if 99.99% of all creation is destined to eternal separation from the king of all creation. That's not a scandalous gospel that a few people might make it. That theology to me is that Satan is the king of all creation because everybody goes that way. He wins. But a fortunate few might make the cut. They might be one of the jars of clay that don't get smashed. 
And that was the part that I just, I didn't know, I didn't have the apologetics for it except to say God's ways are higher than my ways and God's understanding is hard to understand. So too bad. I don't know. If people are suffering eternal torment, that's between them and God and none of my business. Bow now or bow later. Am I right? Yay. And then we'd go to the youth worship night and just be like, yeah. And that is confusing. It gets to you. It gets to you when you become a parent and you're like, I hope my kids make the cut. <laughs> right? It messes with you. And, and I realized that um, <clears throat> it can't be. It, it, it's not the, the, the scandal of the gospel is not that only 0.01% make the cut. What I hear when I read the scriptures, and I've done that quite a bit in my life, uh, 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 not enough to brag, I would say, but like I'm working my way there. I don't know. I'm, there's a new t-shirt coming, I think. It's like, <laughs> I'm right, you're wrong. I'm still working on that. I'm still trying to achieve that. Um, yeah, yeah. Bow now or bow later. Dr. Nikayla. <laughs> yeah, now you have to listen. Perfect. <clears throat> yes. Um, I think the scandal of the gospel when I read the scriptures, though, is that in Christ... Uh, God might declare, I'm coming for you. <laughs> that even to the most broken and wounded and lost and afraid people in this world, I'm coming for you. The parts of you that you hate, God says, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you and the spouse that cheated on you. I'm coming for you and also for his mistress. I'm coming for you and the 13-year-old crying alone in her room because she can't understand the chaos of her parents' divorce. I'm coming for you, and I'm coming for the actors and the videos you watch late at night after everyone else is asleep. I'm coming for every fish in the sea, and I'm coming for the executive director of the oil and gas company that is destroying the sea that I'm coming for you and for your enemies. I'm coming for you who think you have no enemies and all the people that think of you as their enemy. The scandal of the gospel, I think what Paul is getting at here is that the love of God is set on the whole world. That's the Bible verse that we have more memorized, I think, as Christians than any other Bible verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It's not for God so hated the world that his son stepped in to take the beating on, the, on behalf of a few. It's that the love of God is set on the whole world. It doesn't even say, for God so loved all of humanity. It's the whole earth. I, I always think there's a few scriptures that get to me when I start wrestling through like the afterlife. One, in Philippians 2, um, there's this beautiful poem about how Jesus became like the most humble being in the world. So humble, he could have boasted, he could have bragged, he could have put like, Dr. Jesus, I know everything on his shirt. But instead, he was like submissive, even to death. Therefore, all authority is given to him. He's the only one you can trust with it. And uh, one day, every knee will bow and tongue confess that this most humble and gentle lamb of creation is the way, is the only way. So it says that right there in Philippians 2, one day everyone will know that it's the way of the Lamb. And here in Romans, Paul's like, and everyone that one day knows will be saved. Jesus on the cross in Luke's gospel, as he's being crucified, cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's pretty wild, because who's Jesus speaking to? Is he like, forgive that guy, Paul, that guy, you know, 
I don't know, I'm thinking of like Latin names, like, or is he speaking that like that's resonating throughout history through all of scripture? That blows my mind because it's like, I feel like if Jesus prays and says, Father, forgive them, that probably happens, right? He probably gets that. That's probably part of the power of Jesus is like, if he advocates on your behalf, like that's pretty good. That's the lawyer you want in court, right? So, but Jesus says, forgive them. They know not what they do. Which messes with me, because my theology I grew up with was like, until you confess and repent, there's no forgiveness. But I don't imagine those people like nailing Jesus to the cross had a moment of like repentance, and yet Jesus is like, I already forgive you. I forgive you. I know that you don't understand what you're doing. You're taking orders. You think that you're doing the good thing to help the empire that is like your home, and, and, and I, I know that you think that you're doing the right thing. I know, you know, that that, like, say, oil and gas exec thinks he's doing the right thing, that my parents were doing the best they could. Like, there's that sense that Jesus has. He's like, I see you. I see the wound behind these bad habits. I forgive you. I think that the love of God is set on the whole world. And somehow, at some point, because God's ways are higher than my ways and God's wisdom is wiser than the wise, all of creation will be held in the arms of love. Um, and I know the Bible talks a lot about the wrath, the wrath of God, and that's even there in Romans 9 to 11. And, and the wrath of God, I don't think, is something I have to, like, delete from my slide, you know, which I could be accused of because I only put a few verses here. Um, but So, like, I'm not denying the wrath of God. I just think that wrath can either be redemptive or punitive. And what I mean by that is, like, let's say, like, Dallas steals 500 bucks from me, and I'm mad because I really needed that because someone rode off with my catalytic converter last week, and I need a new vehicle or whatever. I'm like, you can't steal my $500. So, like, the wrath of God could either just, like, punish Dallas, like, take him out back and beat him up and kick him out of the community and be like, you're never welcome here. But then guess what? I'm out 500 bucks, and we're out of Dallas. Who did that serve? Who's, who's benefited by that? A, a punitive wrath benefits nobody except the one lashing out in wrath. But God doesn't do anything for self-serving purposes. Like, like, would it just feel good for for God to like? I don't, I'm sorry, I'm using you and God beating you up as an example, but like, you know, I, you're just right here. I see you. Um, who would that serve? If in my anger I just lashed out and told you you're so awful and you're so bad and I, I hate you and I can't stand you and I'll never trust you again and that's awful and just sent you out. It didn't serve Dallas. It's not going to make him think like, I did a bad thing. I should give back that money. It just shames him. And it doesn't benefit the community and it doesn't benefit the person who lost the 500. It just benefits the one who's angry. But a redemptive wrath is like, yo, what's going on? Why did you need to steal the $500? Where's the scarcity in your life? What's, what's the need? What's the wound? What's the control? What is it? How can we get that $500 back to Nikayla and restore your relationship and restore the community and, and address this financial stress everybody's under that we're sneaking and stealing and, and protecting and not trusting? And then the wrath of God, yeah, Dallas has to give back the 500 and say sorry. And the wrath of God hasn't finished his work until we're friends again. And then the wrath of God's redemptive. It healed. It fixed. So I'm not saying, like, no matter what you do, everything's awesome. God already loves you. Just do whatever you want. Do whatever feels good. If there's 500 bucks, it's yours, man. Early, like, find his keepers. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that in all things, God is working out redemption and reconciliation. I saw this thing. Um, 
on Twitter, I'm not, I know, I wish I, I was going to kind of like not say that and just be like, I heard this amazing conversation between a father and a daughter, but I, I didn't. I saw it on Twitter. So anyway, here we go. And it blew my mind. And in part of the, the uh, kind of meme or whatever it was, there's a comment about how it like reconfigured this guy's theology. And it was a conversation between a three-year-old daughter and her dad. And it says that the three-year-old daughter brought a broken toy to her dad tearfully. And she says, can we fix it? And the dad responds, like what all loving dads would respond, yeah, of course we can fix it. And she says in her little three-year-old way, why do we fix it? And the dad explains, to make it work again. And then the three-year-old corrects her dad and says, no, we don't fix it to make it work again. We fix it because we love it. We fix it because we love it. Yeah, we're not just fixing the broken things so they'll be more productive for the economy or something. We fix it because we love it. You're broken and I want to fix you because I love you. You're my favorite. <laughs> so if everyone is saved, you might say, so what's the point of being a Christ follower? And that's what Paul's addressing there in chapter 10. What's the point of being a Christ follower? And, and, and so here's the gospel. Because um, beloved, here's the thing. The new age has already begun. The resurrection has already started. The veil between heaven and earth has already been torn. We aren't just here hiding out until we go to the place where the streets are made of gold. We're here in overalls to repair these broken roads. Now, the wiping away of tears is our work, and we do it now. We get to start melting down our guns and our tanks and our self-defense mechanisms now. We plant gardens now. We get, to, uh, we get to forgive our enemies now. We get to begin the work of reconciliation now. We get to find who are the people who aren't talking, who aren't communicating, who have unspoken anger and unspoken pain. How can we, the church, because of the hope we have in Christ, Proclaim that reconciliation is possible now. Not one day when that guy's in hell, like, I, I should have said sorry, you were right. That's not very hopeful, right? We get to do that work now. We get to uh, advocate for people now. We get to march now. We get to love. We get to pay attention now. We get to weep with those who weep now. We get to look at that 13-year-old uh, kid at the youth rally with the t-shirt, bow now or bow later, and be curious about what pain underneath all that is there that's making her desperate to say to the world, I'm right, and one day you'll know that. We get to see the fear behind the F. Trudeau bumper sticker. Yeah? Whoa, what kind of pain, what kind of displacement has happened in that guy's life that he's anxiously, like, like, bow now, bow later, and F. Trudeau, it's the same shirt, right? It's the same shirt. Like, the big Canadian flags on all, all the trucks and, like, the really loud engine. Like, I'm like, how much money do you make to convert fuel into sound? <laughs> I'm just trying to convert it into horsepower. Like, <laughs> wow. But it's this loud proclamation that I'm right I'm on the inside, I know the truth, I know the real story, and one day you'll all suffer and know that I was right. And I could just be like, oh, what a, what a loser that guy is. Or 
because of the hope I have in Christ and the scandal of the gospel, be like, there's unspoken pain and fear and someone who's afraid that they're getting left behind. Yeah? And I can walk fearlessly with love towards that place of fear and pain. I can lean in to what some part of me wants to run away from. I can walk with love towards the hatred. In, in, in the day of Pentecost, for example, the Holy Spirit shows up uh, uh, to empower these people to walk with heaven towards the hell that's here now. Say, I know the odds are stacked against us. We are a very small church. Um, the gospel that we proclaim here doesn't often like attract a lot of wealth. <laughs> Can I say that? I don't know. That's probably like elders meeting comment. It's on the podcast now. Sorry. But like the idea is like um, we're a small church and we're tired and we're surviving uh, uh, coming through kind of a pandemic, though we're all nervous about the numbers and what's coming this winter. And it's hard. And, and some days like I have a lot of conversations with people and it's like, man, should we just call it? Like that sounds kind of terrifying. Don't worry. No one's like seriously like, you know, that's not that's just depressed Nikayla being like, what do we do? And everyone's like, Nikayla, it's not that bad. Calm down. But it's that sense of like, sometimes it feels like the odds are against us. Um, and then I read Romans and I see that it's, that's the hope. The hope that we have isn't because we're big and powerful and we got tons of money and tons of resources. The hope we have is the resurrected Christ. I'm going to tell you what, in first century Rome, the odds were stocked pretty hard against uh, 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 Jesus of Nazareth and his 12 friends <laughs> stacked so hard against Jesus of Nazareth and his 12 friends that they were all executed, right? Imagine being the people on the day of Pentecost in the upper room praying like, Jesus left and we don't know what to do now. Rome is still being Rome. And, and, and the spirit comes and it's not this sense of like glory and power um, it's a sense of now you can go love people that you were afraid to love before and see what happens. And so I'm just like, hey, we got this beautiful little common cupboard. We got this beautiful garden that's kind of taking its winter rest right now. And I look around at all the faces here right now, and I'm like, we are rich. These broken toys are so loved. <laughs> we're fixing every one of them. And we're going to have that walk out that hope that love that faith that when we look out there we see uh toys that don't know they're left and we can do all things through christ who strengthens us we can walk in love um so that i would love to go for a walk and talk about that with you and talk about romans um i'm going to read actually logan and dion your last um prayer that I know is based on Romans 8 there. I just put it up at the end of this um, to kind of close the sermon with. And then um, Eric, I think, yeah, <laughs> is going to come uh, invite us to the communion table. Um, <clears throat> yeah, thank you, Logan and Dion, for this prayer. It says, For nothing is impossible with God. There is no place you can go. No end of the earth you can run where God cannot find you. There is nothing on earth or beyond death. Those are Paul's words in Romans 8. That can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are reconciled to God 
live with the love of God. And I see that as, so go forgive, go love, reconcile, walk out the gospel that we've been given, which I think calls us to turn towards each other with love. So I'm going to pray and Eric will come up. Uh, Creator of the heavens and the earth, ancient of days, eternal one, our hope is in you and you alone. Our hope is that love gets the final say, that life has the final say, not death, that hope, not despair, has the final say, that justice has the final say. And so I pray that you shape our imagination to walk out our faith in this land. Protect us from fears that we have that keep us disconnected from one another. And I pray that you protect us from the anger we want to express to our friends who've let us down. Give us the courage and empower us by your spirit to lean in with love. It's not by our strength that we continue in this, it's by yours. It's not by our power, it's yours. It's not for our glory, it's for the glory of the lamb who's been slain. And it's not our own personal kingdom we're building, it's yours that we are bearing witness to in our midst. And so for you and in you and through you, we say together, amen.